They are going crazy. Ladies and gents, it's not Ben today, it's Dan Gorolov, and with me we have a fantastic guest. We have Mark Schofield on to give us some really good context in terms of one of the biggest questions in the draft, really, where, where the Patriots are going to land on things, but also to, to do a real deep dive in the quarterbacks. I don't think it's selling Mark short or, or overselling it and saying that he's a, he's a bit of a quarterback guru, college guru in his, in his heyday. Um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we want to go guru in terms of my career. I mean, okay, I will yeah. say that in terms of my college career, it taught me what you shouldn't do at the position. So I guess in a way I've become an expert through my own experiences. So we can say that. Right. Well, and knowing what you didn't know is is one of the big things. This is true. Right? Okay. Yeah. It's knowing your limitations, whether it's in playing the quarterback position, whether it's in scouting the quarterback position, whether it's on Call of Duty and Warzone, and you know that you aren't the person to carry the squad, and your best role is to just be a bullet sponge for your friends. Like, I know my limitations, and I am all of those things. So, yeah. <laughs> and by the sounds of it, you probably learned those last couple of things over the last month or so. Yeah, although it's because of the pre-draft grind, Dan, I haven't been yeah. on call of duty in a long time although i really can't tell time right now i don't know if today is thursday or monday i don't know if it's 3 a.m or 3 p.m like everything's happening in like dog years at this point so maybe it's just been a couple of days since i've been on i really don't know but it feels like years <laughs> i think that's fair i think that's fair it was just easter here i assume it's easter the same oh, time right. it was easter on sunday that's yeah. right had no clue oh, until yeah. the day. So there you yeah, go. the Easter yeah. Bunny did come. I thought the Easter. I wanted to sell the kids on the fact that the Easter Bunny was quarantined, <laughs> but it didn't quite take. And so now I have to do it because Simone lost a tooth. I think the Tooth Fairy is not under quarantine either. So we're going to see. Maybe the Tooth Fairy makes it to our house tonight. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Or you can save a few dollars if not. That's, That's true. Apparently, the Tooth Fairy is supposed to be bringing a 20. I learned that one today, which is interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. In this changes. economy, that's in uh, this economy, in this depression. Come on. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> so, so yes. Sorry. Before before we completely go off the rails, we're we're going to go through uh, the quarterback class. Um, we're going to get Mark's insights from from the Senior Bowl, which he was able to attend before we all got locked down. Um, and yeah, then we'll we'll get into some of the the fits from free agency and where we think people might land in the draft. So. I guess I guess I'll, I'll give you the floor, really, Mark. Out the quarterback class, which who are you highest on? I guess. I mean, I, I think the easy answer, and in my opinion, the right answer, although you know others can certainly disagree. Joe Burrow is quarterback one in this class, and I think it would be hard. Although I know, like the one and only Matt Waldman has made the case for Tua Tagovailoa as his quarterback one, and Matt and I have talked about that some. But but for me. Burrow would be quarterback one, even if we thought the Tua Tungavailoa was completely healthy. Like, if Tua had never been hurt, Burrow's still quarterback one. And, and part of it is both of them handle the pocket extremely well, but what Burrow doesn't handle in the pocket translates more to the NFL than what Tua doesn't handle in the pocket. Tua relies more on his athleticism 
whereas Burrow is going to rely more on his just ability in terms of using his feet to slide around and create space. You know, one of the things that has made Tom Brady Tom Brady isn't the fact that he's an incredible athlete. It's the fact that he can use his feet like a boxer does and to create space to throw a punch. You know, Brady's not scrambling and running around and running away from people. He's just creating gaps. And all he's created with those gaps is enough room to make a throw. Burrow at times, like, look, you, you turn on the national championship game, LSU's first offensive play, Isaiah Simmons blitzes from the slot, and Burrow has to run around and create, you know, space with his legs. And it looks like he's running, but he's really just creating a bit of movement and a bit of space between him and the nearest defender. And then he uncorks a 40-yard rocket to Thaddeus Moss along the right sideline. I like, He's not going to be able to run around like that, but in the NFL, what he'll still be able to do is what he did at the outset, which is when he sees Simmons come off the slot, get away from him enough to make a throw. Like because when he tries that at the NFL, there's going to be somebody on the opposite edge who's going to be there waiting for him. So he just has to create enough space. Tua still tries to fight Toulon into plays, and it's one of the beauties of him, but it's that duality of quarterback play that has led to the injuries. An analogy I've used a lot, I'm not one for comparisons, this is more of an analogy, but when you watch Carson Wentz, you know, part of the thing that makes Carson Wentz great is his willingness to fight to the whistle, to extend plays, to make some ridiculous throws with people draped on his legs, but it's led to some of his injuries, Dan. And that's what we're seeing with Tua. And so even if you didn't have the injury history, I would have sort of injury fears with Tua because of his style of play. So I think what Burrow does translates better to the NFL. Then he checks all sorts of other boxes like competitive toughness, accuracy to all levels, vision in the pocket, his ability to beat the blitz with a quick read or a quick decision. Let's not forget in Joe Brady's system, LSU ran empty on 84 or 83% of their plays. It was a five-man protection scheme, which means he's responsible for that sixth potential rusher. If you don't have that guy blocked, it's on the quarterback to block him by either a quick read or a quick throw or escape it in the pocket. He checks so many boxes for me. I've been doing this sort of professionally since 2015. I think he's the cleanest guy there has been. So, yeah, it, it's Burrow for me. Well, and that's 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 a big thing to hear, right? Because we've had some good quarterbacks in that time too. So it's yeah, it's not I like mean, he's. I mean, it's it's you know people have said is he the cleanest guy since Luck, and I think there is a case to be made that yeah he is. I mean, you look at everything he's done, it's the stuff you want to see from a quarterback. Now, people might say, you know, what about the fact that you know Joe Burrow wasn't this guy in 2018. And I think if you look back at his film from 2018, you know, Dan, I remember watching him this past summer and there are some things that I sort of liked. I didn't, I didn't see this, you know, but what was impressive about him was the stuff I just talked about and how he operated in Joe Brady's offense and handled those protection schemes and those five man protections. You know, he's still that guy. Like he, he's still the guy that We'll be able to do this at the next level. I'm not so much convinced that it was all because of Joe Brady's offense. I think Joe Brady brought out the best in him, but that guy doesn't go away, you know, come draft night. That guy is still there. Right, right. And yeah, I was going to ask you about that transition from last uh, last season to this. And it sounds like he still had those flashes. Obviously, that was his first season really being right. the guy, right? Yeah. Um, and changing program too. Yeah. You know, and... But again, like when you look at the body of work, when you look at the fact that he's now done this for two years, I mean, this was a 10 and three team in 2018. 
Like LSU came on down the stretch. Like we seem to have this idea that, oh, you know, th- this was a different team and he wasn't as good. They still went 10 and three. I mean, that's pretty good in the SEC. You know, maybe nobody saw this sort of rise and that's fair, but it doesn't mean that this quarterback wasn't there waiting to come out. I think Joe Brady helped pull him out. He certainly had good receivers to throw to and Chase and Jefferson, who should be a first round pick. Thaddeus Moss at the tight end spot, who's probably going to be, you know, the NFL draft invited him to the virtual draft. So we expect him to go fairly early. So he does have some players around him, but so did Tua. I mean, Tua's playing with two guys that will be first round picks mm-hmm. and two guys that will be first round picks next year. So the fact that they both had good guys around them, I don't think it's something to hold against them so much as it is just a reflection of where they went. Right. Yeah, for sure. And um, I actually quite like the fact that he he backed up at, at Ohio, right? He's had that kind of adversity and he, he's shown yeah. some humility by sticking there for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, and, and Urban Meyer, you know, you read the stories and how, you know, I think I forget there was a moment where, you know, Burrow screwed something up and Urban Meyer said, like, you know, you don't even belong at Mount Union or something like that, which is a Division three school. And this is when JT Barrett was still there. And he's like, man, that's rough. You know, he used to tell me Youngstown State, you know, which is obviously an FCS school. Like, Urban Meyer is tough on quarterbacks. But sometimes you need that. Like, you know, quarterbacks, you know, I could say this as a member of the quarterback union. We're a bit like snowflakes. We're not all the same. Like, they have to be treated differently. Some quarterbacks you have to handle with kid gloves. Like, that was me. I was a guy that he had to sort of handle with kid gloves, again, as the worst Division three backup quarterback in the history of the NCAA. You know, Burrow and perhaps some other quarterbacks have to be pushed a little bit. And for what he went through at Ohio State, you know, I think that started to put him on the path to where he is now. And then he got into a situation where, okay, he had been put through the renter a bit by Urban Meyer with how this Ohio State situation panned out. Then he had Coach O come to him and say, look, you're the guy. Like, I believe in you. So he had that, you know, harsh, bad cop routine at the outset, then a bit of a good cop routine, and it's put him to the first pick overall in the draft. I think it worked out okay for him. Right, yeah. And, uh, I mean, obviously there's always rumors about the first round pick and and, and the first pick overall, sorry, and and often that's to keep the suspense of the draft alive. Right. I think we all know he's, he's pretty damn likely to be going to the Bengals. How do you see him as a fit in that system? I think he's an ideal fit in that system. I mean, when you look at what they're going to be doing conceptually, it's going to be very similar to what we've seen from the Rams. Obviously, Zach Taylor, a, a branch off that, Sean McVay coaching tree. It's going to be rooted in sort of West Coast concepts, a lot of space and concepts, a lot of time and rhythm throws. And I think that is pretty much ideal for Joe Burrow. You know, the one knock on him from sort of a, a trait standpoint he doesn't have the most powerful arm of this group. I mean, I, I I could probably count four or five guys off the top of my head that have a better arm than he does. So he's probably not the best fit for a full-on downfield passing game. Like, I don't think Bruce Arians, unless, you know, something crazy happened, would be excited about drafting Joe Burrow, at least at 14. But at the same time, for what he's going to be asked to do in Zach Taylor's system, I think it's ideal. You know, space and concepts, time and rhythm throws, attack the middle of the field, get the running backs involved in the passing game. I think it's a pretty perfect fit. Awesome. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And uh, I, I don't feel the need to give Bengals fans any, any kind of <laughs> further no. assurance. In this I one, mean, right? look, it, it's, <laughs> it's going to be Joe Burrow. Then start thinking about what you guys do at 33. Like, you know, enjoy it, Bengals fans. I think you're getting a good one. 
Right, yeah. And in this draft class, the 33rd pick isn't going to be a bad player either. So No, I mean, you look at how this board could fall. I mean, you might get a decent offensive tackle there, although I know Benjamin Albright is saying we might see six offensive tackles in the first round. That would surprise me, but you know, maybe one of those six falls to 33. You could get a decent corner. I'm seeing some mocks where one of those two safeties, Xavier McKinney or Grant Delpit, falls out of the first round. I mean, I know you've got Jesse Bates, but wouldn't hurt to have another safety there. You know, you could look at, you know, maybe this isn't the best edge class, but if you're thinking about edge, uh, you took Gross Matos from Penn State or an AJ Ipanessa, who's more of a 3-4 defensive end. They might be there at 33. Obviously, they don't need a running back, but running backs will be available at some point in this draft if they wanted to get Joe Mixon a little bit of depth. Maybe that's more of a day later day three thing. But yeah, they're going to have the opportunity to get a great player at 33 to help this team get better. You know, maybe it's an interior offensive lineman. Maybe a, a Jonah Jackson from Ohio State is there or a Natane Muti from Fresno State who's been cleared medically. Might be one of the better interior offensive linemen. He does have the injury history, but they would have some options at 33 for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a great debrief. And uh, for those that don't know, Mark is, is a Patriots fan, has covered the, the team for several years. Last time Mark and I spoke was actually the, the week before the last Super Bowl win. Um, so in terms of actually feasible quarterbacks that, the, that could be available for the Patriots, Burrow is not going to drop. Maybe, maybe Herbert could, maybe Tua with the injury concerns. On that, did you see the the tour workout? And and from your trained eye, how did you how did you feel about the workout? You know, let, let me preface it there by saying during the combine out in Indianapolis, it was the most awkward thing because anytime Tua moved, everybody pulled out their cell phone to shoot a video of it. Like whether he was just walking from one room to another, walking to a podium, walking down from a podium coming up or down the podium steps, like it was sort of must-watch television. Like people, that is the most examined hip, I think from an outsider standpoint, obviously since Bo Jackson and maybe even longer, maybe since Shakira, I guess, if you want to go down that road. And, and so I think we've really sort of over-examined the hip, but when you watch that virtual pro day, he moved fairly well, you know, he didn't see sort of any hitch or any sort of favoring of that hip. And so I, I think he's progressed well enough. But I will say, and you know, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. You know, lawyers tend to think they're doctors as well, and we're not. And so my untrained eye, I think he looks okay. But I'm not one that's going to be turning in a card that has his name on it with a four-year contract attached to it, with the millions of dollars that will be associated with it. I'd say if you're the Miami Dolphins, are you going to be comfortable doing that at five when you've st still got two more first-round picks and you could potentially move up and get somebody, say, at 12 or something? Uh, to me, he looks great, but I don't have to make that decision, and I'm glad that I don't because it's a risky one. Like I just did a piece over Touchdown Wire, USA Today, identifying some of the riskiest players in this draft, and two is certainly one of them. Like he's great on the field. He's great between the lines, but it is a question mark. Are you going to be satisfied with him from a medical standpoint? We're hearing Michael Lombardi, who obviously I respect, saying the teams have failed him from a physical standpoint. There's talk of potential previous wrist injuries. 
it's a risky decision. And when you're talking about putting the future of your franchise on this kid, that's a lot. You know, and in this current climate, when you might not get that extra medical recheck from your own people at your facility because of the COVID-19 situation, teams might say, look, you know what? I'm going to let it be somebody else's problem. Now, if he falls into the teens, if he falls into the 20s, at some point, a team's going to say, at this point, look, we had 17 first round grades on our board. Those guys have been picked or most of those guys have been picked and those who haven't, we don't need at that position we'll be okay with it at like 14 or 15 or 16. But at five, it gets to be a bit dicey. Right. And then you've got people talking about whether the, the Chargers is going to try and get in front of the Dolphins for him and things like that. And I guess when you're trading up for someone, you've really got right. to be comfortable. So. You've got to be absolutely comfortable because, you know, if you're a team like just say Detroit, if you're going to trade out a three, and you know somebody's coming up to get a quarterback, they're gonna you're gonna make them pay that premium. It's not gonna be the like pull up the trade value chart and oh okay, the third pick is worth the seventh and a, a future first rounder. No, it's gonna be like give me seven, give me your second rounder, give me your first rounder next year. You know, let me name the stadium after my kids. Like we're going to PF Chains. Like, you know, you're going to get everything you can from them because you know they're coming up to get a quarterback. It costs more to come up to get a quarterback than to come up and get a different position. And so given what it will cost you to get there, you have to be completely sure that he's okay from a medical standpoint. And I don't know if teams are right now. And this dates back to pre-coronavirus, Dan, because I was told down at Mobile from a couple of different people around a couple of different teams, they were still wary of the hip then. And so there's, it's not just a recent thing, although the wrist and the stuff from Michael Lombardi is, but dating pre-combine, pre-COVID-19, there were these concerns. Right, yeah. And at that point, obviously, you had much more access to him in terms of those medicals, and, and he was tested through the nose, at, well, not literally through the nose, and into Nepalist. So, I mean, I'm sure it's rhetoric everywhere at the moment. It's a bad year for Tua to have these injuries. but Yeah, I mean, it, it it's disappointing in a sense because, you know, in any other season, you know, Tua might have gotten a complete clean bill of health, and he would have been able to say, okay, yeah, he's still a top three, top five pick. But because of this current climate, it's tougher for players like him. It's tougher for players at the end of the draft. You know, if you're like a fringe draftable prospect, that pro day might have been huge for you. Guys that weren't invited to the combine, they miss out on the opportunity for a pro day. Virtual pro days are only going to do so much. You know, so it's going to have this huge impact on players of all stripes. And you might be a veteran that's trying to stick on a team. But because of this situation, teams might be more willing to go all in on a draft pick rather than having you, especially if we get shortened training camps, reduced preseason games, those sort of fringe roster worthy veterans, they might be on the outside look at it. And so there's going to be this massive butterfly effect league wide. You know, we can think about it for the names that we recognize like Tua and others. But there will be guys that are on rosters right now that might not get a chance to stick as a result of shortened pre- training camps and preseasons. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that this is happening. We just kind of have to work through it. And I, I think we all sort of want to see football back. You know, but there are going to be repercussions when it comes back for, you know, guys that are trying to make a living in this game. 
for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's it's a difficult difficult situation, obviously, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah, probably not an ideal time for them to be reducing practice times. I'm not sure if that's from this season or next, but right. yeah. Um, See, so you gave us some good insight there in, in terms of the kind of rumours that, that go around at the at the Senior Bowl and the insight that you get from people. Um, three quarterbacks there may well have been your next three. I, I haven't looked at your rankings today. Um, Herbert, Love and Hertz all, all featured that week. How did you come away from the, the week feeling about those three? Well, I, I think, Dan, let's sort of take it in that order. Mm-hmm. I think Justin Herbert came in sort of for the most – eyes on him a lot of people will look at him and saying you know you have the potential to be qb3 in this group perhaps higher depending on how people feel about tua and i think in large part he sort of answered the questions you know a lot of people have questions about his leadership skills and he addressed that he said look you know i'm a quiet introverted type of person um you walk into a locker room everybody else is losing their minds pre-game i'm usually the guy sitting in the corner you know, I'm the, I'm the guy that's sort of keeping to myself. And so teams want to see if I can be a leader, if I can walk into a huddle and command the attention of the 10 guys around me. I know that that's what teams going to be watching for. He was telling us that he was reading the book, Leadership for Introverts. Like he took that upon himself. And so people wanted to see what he was like, you know, because I would tell you that, you know, obviously leadership matters at the quarterback position, that ability to walk into a huddle and have everybody buy into what you're telling them. And you can see what players have that, what players don't. And you can see it during a practice. Like when Baker Mayfield was down in Mobile for the Senior Bowl, you knew when Baker was there. Like when he walked into the stadium, there was an electricity in the air. It just it just happened. And you see that when he was a rookie, when he walked onto the field for the first time that Thursday nighter against the Jets, it was, it was like a switch went on at that stadium. And, and Baker had that sort of magnetism. And you could see him during drills, like somebody makes a catch and he goes sprinting across the field to dap that guy up. That enthusiasm is there. And Herbert had some of that too. And it was good to see that from him. And the other thing people wanted to see from Justin Herbert that week was, okay, you're in this Oregon offense, which every throw is a tunnel, every throw is a bubble, every throw is a go route. Like we want to see you attack between the hash marks. We want to see you hit the middle of the field. And that Zach Taylor offense, and he did it, and he did it well. So he had a very good week. You know, Jordan Love, to his credit, handled some of the questions well. Obviously, the 17 interceptions, he said, look, they were teaching moments. They were learning lessons. He said all the right things about them. He certainly looked the part at times, has an incredible arm. You know he checks that box. He has the athleticism. I still have reservations about him from a decision-making standpoint that date back to 2018. Like it's not just the 17 interceptions. It's beyond that. Um, but I think he had a good week. The guy I came very away with, I was very impressed with was Jalen hurts. And, you know, some people have a very good pre-draft process. Some people don't hurts has had a very good one. He looked good at the senior bowl. I liked his ability to throw downfield. He parlayed that into a very strong performance at the combine you know, and let's not forget some of the most important parts of the combine are the things we don't get to see. Those interviews, those meetings in a hotel suite where Jalen Hurts can walk in and look, you know, just hypothetically, Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick in the eye and say, okay, here's what I did at Alabama. I lost the job. I didn't transfer. I stayed. I helped who I helped to, I helped my team. They found ways to get me on the field because of what I could do as an athlete. Then when I did get a chance to transfer, I went to Oklahoma. What did I do? I became a captain. I brought that team back to the playoffs. 
Yeah, we lost, but look where I kept that tradition going. Those little clips of him after a game and a win and the team is celebrating in the locker room and he's got most of his pads on except the shoulder pads and the helmet and he's already in the weight room still, still got the pants on. Like that matters at the quarterback position. And so the fact that he could walk into a hotel suite and look ownership in the eye and say, I'm going to lead your team. That's why he's rising up draft awards right now. That's why Bucky Brooks is saying quarterback coaches love him, you know, because of the stuff that he can bring to a franchise. And so I think all three of those guys had a good senior bowl week. I think Hertz has had perhaps the strongest pre-draft process out of any of these quarterbacks. Um, and it's why we're probably going to see him drafted sometime earlier than we expect on day two. That, that's really interesting. And yeah, and to your point, Hertz stepped up in those moments when he needed to, when, when Tua was down or, or yeah. whatever during a game. So it's uh, it's an interesting class. And, and I guess those three as much as anybody in this class have have those questions about decision making and, and interceptions and, and the like. Yeah. How do you grade them personally yourself? How how do you see them? Yeah, I mean I, I think you know for me it's there's a tier of of Burrow and Tua, and then there's a bit of a gap, and then there's a tier of you know Herberts, Herbert and Love, and then Eason. I I still put him in that next tier. But there are serious questions there. I think what sort of bails him out is the combination of big arm, athleticism, and some of the stuff that he did conceptually in the Washington offense that you know translates to the NFL where he was under center, deep drops off a play action, read in the middle of the field. He didn't always do it right, but he did it enough that there's at least a body of development to work with. And then Hurts and Fromm, you know, and I would put Fromm into that second tier as well. And for similar reasons to Hertz, you know, again, with Jake Fromm, the stuff we could see at the combine, it wasn't great. He ran a five second 40. You know, he doesn't check the athleticism box. There were some offensive tackles that were faster. You know, he goes to the throwing session at the combine and it's completely different the way the ball comes out of his hands, the way as opposed to, say, the ball comes out of Jacob Eason's hands or Justin Herbert's hands. But similar to Hertz. When Jake Fromm walks into that same sort of meeting with Belichick, with Josh McDaniels, and he gets to the whiteboard and he says, okay, I was a true freshman in the SEC walking to the line of scrimmage and making protection calls, calling audibles, getting us in and out of bad bad plays. Everybody else is turning to the sideline and looking for a big piece of poster board and a bunch of emojis on it to call plays. I'm doing it. Like You can't do that in the NFL. Yeah, you have the radio headset, but it cuts out. Coach Belichick, what did you do in the Super Bowl against Jared Goff? You called audibles and shifted your defense after that mic cuts out and Jared Goff was a deer in headlights. That won't be me, okay? And so Jake Fromm checks those leadership, mental prowess, all those boxes. He checks. He might be the best in this class from the neck up. All the question marks with Jake Fromm are from the neck down. You know, the athleticism or lack thereof, the arm strength or lack thereof. But what matters with the position and the leadership and the mental approach and the processing He's got those parts to it. And so you look at some other quarterbacks historically that maybe didn't have those tools yet, but developed them. Fromm could be a guy like that. It's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, as you speak through that, I, I told you offline what my opinion of the, the, the type of quarterback that the Patriots might go for. And right. The, at least over the last few years, the quarterbacks they've gone for have kind of, to me anyway, being kind of point guard type 
quarterbacks right. rather than necessarily the big arm. They've gone for the mental processing side of things. Do you think that Fromm is is more their type in this class, or do you think that they they might take the opportunity to to go down a different direction and and predict you know, the Patriots? It's not going to be an easy it, thing. But yeah, Dan, it's fascinating. Daniel Jeremiah, like a week or so ago, you know, pulled out his old like sort of scouted notes from Belichick from when he worked with the Browns and they were in the same organization, and it was a position by position look at the offensive positions and including quarterback and number one was decision-making like that was the number one trait, you know, and then after that you get to arm and athleticism and, but decision-making and accuracy were the two that Belichick stressed on when it comes to the quarterback position. And so when I sit back then and look at this quarterback class and look at the, the, things that they value at the position and the way their offense is structured. I have to believe that a guy like Jake Fromm is more enticing to them than even a guy like Jordan Love. Like, I really think that, you know, we're hearing, you know, Ian Rappaport or Adam Schefter was one of those two. All the names get blurry. Again, we're living in the strange times. I don't know. Right up is down. Black is white. We're all confused. But somebody came on in Boston radio today and said, look, I think they're going to take, you know, a, a premium selection at the quarterback position. I don't think you look at any of the guys that could potentially be there at 23, whether it's Herbert, somehow fallen or love and say that this is a Patriot type player. I just don't think these guys are the types of quarterbacks that they have in mind. I think it's more likely that sometime on day two, you know, they're picking at 87, 98 and 100. Maybe one of those picks is a Jake Fromm. I think it's far more likely they do something like that than, a 23 because let's all forget them they've got other issues you know they didn't just lose tom brady they lost kyle van noy landon roberts and jamie collins and that's just at the linebacker spot they traded a ray duran Harmon. they still have needs a wide receiver they still have needs at tight end and so when you're looking at 23 and you're on the clock and yeah you can draft jordan love or you could draft a patrick queen or you could draft you know, and save your McKinney and help shore up the secondary, especially the safety spot. Or you could trade out of that spot and get, say, two more picks on day two. Like, say, hypothetically, the Colts have picks of 34 and 44. You trade out of 23, you get 34 and 44. Now you can get two more players to help you immediately because you still have Jared Stidham. I think it's far more likely that they do something like that than it is to draft a quarterback at 23. Because then all it does is it gives you one more quarterback option only one guy can take the snaps. Like, you need a couple of linebackers. You need a couple of wide receivers. They've got other needs that can help them right away other than drafting a quarterback that might not even see the field. Right, and when you look at their, their cap situation, it's it's not the easiest thing to fill out their roster anyway. No, right? so it's I mean, taking they're, those extra picks. they're 30-31st in cap space right now, above just the Chiefs who basically have, you know, enough money to buy – a ham sandwich and a 12 pack of Pepsi. Like that's all the chiefs have next to the Patriots. Now they could certainly create some space. We all know the, the salary cap is a construct and a myth and they could trade Joe Tooney who they put the, the franchise tag on. Well, let's say you do that. Now you need a guard. Like, you know, the, the needs are stacking up beyond quarterback. And I do think that, you know, their plan is Jared Stidham and to see what they have in him this year. And that's going to require them getting positions around him to help him to put him in a better place to be successful. And so, you know, I, 
every sort of draft cycle for the past couple of years, people have said, oh, this would be the year that they can take a quarterback early. And I've thought it was far more likely in, say, 2018 than it is this year. I think this is the year where they say, look, we have our next guy. We drafted him in the fourth round last year in Jared Stidham, and now we've got to build at other positions. Right, and, and with Skarnacki gone, keeping that continuity on the offensive line and, and people actually knowing what they're doing and, and keeping Tooney there makes all the sense in the world if you've got a, a rookie or a, a new quarterback coming in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and no, I, I just thought, I think it's a really intriguing place. I mean, to give him a courty, was it 23 million over a couple of years at his age? You, you can't then pivot to, to tanking like some people think that they might. Right. It's not I a mean, check thing, right? I, I don't think so much that they're they would like pivot to tanking. I, I don't think this is a concerted effort to lose games or anything like that. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that beyond the fact they're going to have their first quarterback in you know twenty twenty PT twenty or year one PT post home, they have a tough schedule next year. I mean, they have a first place schedule, which means you're getting Houston, you're getting Baltimore, you're getting Kansas City, right? You've got an NFC West schedule, so you've got trips to Seattle, and you've got trips to the Rams in LA, so you've got West Coast trips there, and you've got the 49ers coming to town, okay? Those are six losable games to start. Now look around the rest of the AFC East. Buffalo looks better, a lot better. You know, you're playing them twice. I mean, Buffalo gave you two tough games last year to begin with. That was with Tom Brady. You've got Miami twice. Miami looks a lot better right now on paper, and they've got three first-round draft picks. You might be talking eight and eight right there. And that's, you know, that's not winning you the AFC East. And so, you know, it's not like they're in a position where they're going to say, look, we're going to go out there and try to tank and tank for Trevor Lawrence or whatever. But because of the, you know, loss of talent they've had, as well as the fact that this schedule doesn't fit, at least on paper, look too favorable right now, they could put together a, Belcher could do the job of his life and his team could go seven and nine. It's just a tough schedule. Right, and I think it's a really intriguing time for them to do this. I think as as a, a football fan that's followed the game for a long time, it's going to be really interesting to see McDaniels and, and Belichick try and scheme an offense with with a more limited quarterback, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, the last couple of years, we've seen that more and more, the coordinator and the head coach being the, the prime asset, I guess, for the offense and the, the quarterback becoming more of a facilitator. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, they've over the past couple of years have made their offense into such where it was less dependent upon the quarterback. Although at times last year, you know, because of the lack of offensive talent, like they had to put games in Brady's hands. But if you think back to, you know, the, the team that made the run to the championship against the Rams, like they were a 21 personnel running team. Like it wasn't what they did best but they used more of that and they tried to take the game out of Brady's hands as much as they could. They've put themselves in a situation where they can do that conceptually, but there's, you're going to be doing it with an untested second year quarterback. Right. And, and talking of that untested second year quarterback that anyone that's been on Mark's Twitter profile will, will handily see him chatting away to. How do you think, how do you see him fitting? Obviously we only really saw him in preseason last year, so it's probably a bit unfair to ask, but are you, are you positive on the upside of Stidham? Or? I think so. I mean, I, I think when they drafted Stidham, like, 
the offense that he was in both at Baylor and then at Auburn, like really did him no favors. It's similar to the sort of the Justin Herbert discussion where, you know, the offense didn't really do him favors from an evaluation standpoint. When he got to the senior bowl, he played in Kyle Shanahan's offense and looked every bit the part of a guy that at one point people were talking about him as a potential first rounder and it fell apart a little bit. Um, But you saw what he could be when he was playing for Kyle Shanahan during the senior bowl. And, you know, I asked him about that. I said, look, you know, what was your favorite route concept to run this week? And he just looked at me and laughed and said, all of them, you know, which sort of I read as, yeah, I get it. You're finally in a, an offense that's catered to what you do. Now, I will tell you, Dan, that when he was drafted by the Patriots and he came in for rookie minicamp, he was throwing interceptions and walkthroughs. Like it, it just played out, you know, with, with trash cans as the defense for the most part. And people were looking around like, well, what is this? This is a disaster. Like, why did they draft this guy? But they were very impressed with the work he showed in training camp and in preseason games. He seemed advanced beyond where they expected him to be from a mental standpoint with the work he put in. He's working out with Jordan Palmer's group. So he's out there with like Sam Darnold and others, you know, out of the West Coast before we all got locked down. But that's the people he's working out with Joe Burrow. Um, and, and so he's put a lot of work in. And they're very excited about what he's done to this point, you talk to guys with the defensive side of the ball, whether it's Stephon Gilmore or Devin McCourty, and they'll tell you part of the reason their defense was good last year, as good as it was, was because of what he was doing against them during the week in practice. You know, they felt like he really made that defense better. And so this team is very high on him, you know, and I know they have a tough salary cap standpoint, given the lack of space that they have. You know, but the fact that they didn't try to make a move for a Cam Newton or a Jameis Winston, or trade for Andy Dalton. Obviously, we're expecting he's going to be available and on the block. It tells you how they feel about it. The move they made at the quarterback position was to bring Brian Hoyer back. And I don't think anybody expects he's the long-term answer for them. That was the, we're going to get our Josh McGowan, our veteran mentor, to sort of help the quarterback like Josh McGowan did for Sam Darnold. And we're going to see what Jared Sinem has. So they're excited about him. Everybody I've talked to in and around that team is very excited about the potential there. There's excitement about sort of seeing what he can be. Whether he lives up to that excitement obviously remains to be seen. Right, and, and to your point, I didn't even see any rumors of them going and talking to the Colts about Brissette, right? Who, who was obviously with right. the Patriots for a long time, has starting experience. Yeah, so. I mean, because if they make that move, that's the move which is you're bringing them in to compete for the starting job or if not be the starter, right? Like this is a guy with NFL starting experience. No, they, they got Brian Hoyer. Like to me, this just all screams we're rolling the stidham and we'll see. I mean, I think there is legitimate reason to be excited. I wouldn't say that anybody's expected him to have a 20 year run like Tom Brady did, but I think there's like cautious optimism. And I, I think that's warranted in this case. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's super interesting. I think that the change management in sports teams, when they, they go through such a, a big period like that, right, they've got enough pieces that are sticking around. Um, yeah. it's, it's such a key point. It's really going to show um, how how professional of an organization they've been irrelevant of Brady, I guess. Yeah. Um, I- one thing that we talked about last year was, was the potential for a transition to McDaniels taking over from Belichick eventually. Um, I think there were rumors this year that he at least had talks with the Browns. Do you think that that's just something he had to do with that roster? I don't know if there's anything you've heard about that situation. How do you feel about McDaniels going forward? 
I mean, I, I think there's still, you know, a general sense that McDaniels is going to be a head coach at some point. I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation and discussion about, well, what does this year mean for, for Bill Belichick, right? The first post-Tom Brady year. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, if the Patriots do go 4-12, and 12, is it going to allow us to have some sort of definitive, you know, conclusion on the Brady versus Belichick question, which is why I think this is a very important draft for Bill Belichick, because obviously like he wants to be successful. He wants to win games. This final act of his career, this post Brady act is going to be not wholly determinative of where he ends up in the game. He's still the greatest coach of all time, but it will be the final memories of him, you know? And and so I think he wants to have a successful season as, as a result. I also think if you're Josh McDaniels, if you do want to be a head coach at some point, you have to have success with Jared Stidham this year. Because if you look around the league, you know, what's sort of the formula for teams right now? It's okay, you get your rookie quarterback and you get the offensive-minded head coach to coach him up. You know, the Sean McVay model, the Matt Nagy model. Well, maybe those models haven't resulted in Super Bowls, but that's the model that everybody's sort of trying to figure out right now. Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, for example, that might be the next example of it. You got Baker, get him an offensive-minded head coach. Well, part of the reason that you do that is to develop that young quarterback. And so if you're Josh McDaniels, you want to coach Jared Stidham up so he goes out and has a great year this year so that you can say to whatever organization, whether it's you know Jacksonville or whomever, look what I've done. Look what I did with Jared Stidham. Like, I went from Tom Brady to a fourth-round pick, and we went 10-6, and six, and he had a decent year as a result. And so I, I think there's still excitement that – Josh McDaniels will be an offensive-minded head coach at some point in the near future. But this year is going to be a huge test for him. Because if Jared Stidham burns out and they go 4-12, and 12, people are going to say, well, we're not going to hire him to be a head coach. He Look what he did with another young rookie quarterback, like your younger quarterback. So I think it's a very important year for him as well. Right, and, and speaking about McDaniel's coach, head coaching career and, and young quarterbacks, how do you feel about Drew Lockett, the Broncos this year? He's been essentially no one's really questioned it. They've just said, right, he's he's shown enough potential, and they're going to build around him. How do you feel about him and his potential for the future? You can certainly spit fire on the sidelines. I mean, that video of him rapping, I think, was one of my favorite moments of the entire <laughs> year last year. Um, no, I, I I think Drew Lock. If I could take one quarterback from this year's class and have him follow the path that Drew Locke followed, it would be Jordan Love. Because let's think about what happened to Drew Locke. There were expectations that he was going to be a first-round pick, right? That he was going to be, maybe the, the Broncos would take him at 10, where they were originally slotted. He falls to the second round, and the Broncos do end up taking him. But with that comes lowered expectations, right? If you get picked in the first round and your team struggles, ownership's going to want to see you on the field. The fan base is going to want to see you on the field. It's going to artificially shrink the amount of time you get to sort of learn and develop. Like if your team starts 0-4 and and you're a first-round quarterback, you're going to be on the field for game five. If your team starts 0-4, 0-6, and you're a second-round quarterback, they might still wait to put you on there. There's not going to be this huge impetus to get you on the field. And so that allowed Drew Locke to sort of 
come along at his own pace. And when they were sort of ready and felt that he would make the move, that's what they did. You know, there's not that sort of desire to get the guy on the field. Now, look, you know, Flacco's got injury histories and things like that. But still, there's not that expectation that comes with being a first-round pick. And so for Jordan Love, I think it's a similar situation. I'd love to see him fall to the second round. I think now the Broncos are in a position where look at what they got in addition to him last year's draft. You know, John Elway, say what you want about him about as, as a GM, he played his board perfectly, right? Trades down, gets Noah Fant where he does, gets additional picks, Dalton Reisner and Noah Fant, and it should be Drew Locke in the second round. Now you've got a tight end who's coming into his own. You've got an interior offensive lineman who is a beast. And now you've got pick 15 in this year's draft where you might get one of those top three guys at the wide receiver spot. And now you've got Noah Font, maybe Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, an interior offensive lineman in Dalton Reisner, Andrew Locke. Like, that's a recipe for success. And so I think we always wonder, like, you and I talked last year, quarterback was going to have that second-year leap, Lamar Jackson, right? No, that's what you and I were saying. We always look for that quarterback to have that similar second-year leap. I think Kyler Murray is going to have a leap, and I think Drew Locke is in a situation to have a similar leap when you look at what they've got in place and what they're going to put around them with that pick at 15. Right, yeah, and as we said last year, it's been shown time and time again that development that a lot of quarterbacks make between the first and second year because they just don't they don't get the time when they're having to, to try out and do the combine work and all these wonderlick test training and, and things like that that play no real basis for anything they do when they right. come into the league, but it's what they're tested on. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see what kind of leap they make with, I guess, with coronavirus and whether that stunts it a little bit, but they're still going to have the playbook and all that time to, to go through it. Right. I mean, and that's something that I always try to stress with people about rookie quarterbacks is that now in, in this year, obviously it's different. Uh, but for many rookie quarterbacks, like you finish your final college game, whether it's a regular season game or a bowl game, you are in a dead sprint from that moment till week one of the NFL season because you go through the world's longest and strangest inter- job interview process, which is the draft, right? You've got the combine to train for and maybe a senior bowl and top 30 visits and all that. And then rookie mini camp and then OTAs and then training camp. Like you don't get a chance to breathe and you're doing this while buying a house or a condo and, you know, suddenly, you know, you're not in a dorm or athletic housing on campus. You're figuring this stuff out on your own for the first time. And all the other stuff that comes from that, like figuring out, you know, condo insurance or renter's insurance or house insurance and cars and things like that. Like, it's a lot. You're figuring out how to be an adult at the same time you're figuring out how to be an NFL quarterback. And so for many quarterbacks, the main benefit and the main sort of impetus for that second year leap is the chance that when the season ends, you get a chance to breathe again. Like, you get a chance to take two weeks off and do nothing and maybe go eat pizza on a beach like Baker Mayfield did. Like, you get to just do nothing. And then you can come back to it. And for most of these guys, yeah, they've, they'll be going through a virtual, you know, training session now, but they can still just get up to speed on their own pace and it's not breakneck. And for some of these quarterbacks, you're not learning three different or five different or 10 different offenses like they were because that's part of the process. You get this team's playbook and then you come in for the top 30 visit and they're telling you, okay, well in Brown Thunder, right, you know, 22 X Z go, like, what is that? Like, and it's something completely different in a different system. You're just learning the one playbook. And so even though these guys are in different settings right now, they're still having that chance to stop, to decompress, to breathe, and then pick it up at their own pace. Yeah, maybe they can't go out and 
fly everybody out to North Dakota like you know Carson Wentz did and have throwing sessions, but you could still go through that on your own and you can do it at your own pace. I, I think even you know the guys that can't do that right now, you know this year's second year class, they're still in positions to be successful. Right, for sure. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure Daniel Jones will pick it up and I'm, I'm sure Kyler Murray is going to kick on to. I, I guess the reason I didn't pick out Kyler is, you know, you get a wide receiver like Hopkins in there. We don't right. need and to sit here for five and minutes. And if they draft CeeDee Lamb at eight, like, I mean, yeah. that's that's not even fair. Like, it's not fair. No, totally, totally agree. Um, so while I've got you and while we can talk quarterbacks and I appreciate that the Brady thing is still going to be raw, how do you see him on the Bucks? How how is he going to mesh with with uh, with Arians, in your opinion? Yeah, it it is sort of fascinating, Dan, to think about. Um, you know, I I will say that when they lost to Tennessee, I was on radio in San Francisco the next day, that Sunday, and I said, "Look, you know, watch Tampa Bay, you know, because knowing what I know about Tom Brady." You know, what's the thing that has made Tom Brady great? It's not the pistachio ice cream or the, the pliability or going to bed at, you know, 6.15 p.m. every night. It's the chip on his shoulder. I mean, what did he do this offseason? He started a film company. and What did he name it, Dan? He named it 199 Productions. We recorded this on April 16th, which is the anniversary of the day he was drafted, right? In the sixth round at 199. And he's on Instagram quote tweeting or quote gramming a screen cap of the guys picked before him with a caption, happy anniversary, I still haven't forgotten. Like To this day, he's angry that he was picked 199. I've often joked that you get onto an elevator with you know, a vegan, somebody that does CrossFit, and Tom Brady. Like, What are you going to learn first about these three strangers? You're going to learn that Tom Brady was picked 199. Like the vegan and the CrossFit enthusiast, they're going to try to get in there. But Brady's going to tell you, no, I was picked 199 in the draft. Did you know that? Like it drives him to this day. And so I said, look, what are people saying about Tom Brady as a quarterback? They're saying that he doesn't have the arm strength anymore, that he never had the arm strength. What would be the absolute worst offense for Tom Brady to run? A Bruce Arians, Eric Coriel downfield passing game. So I said, guys, I know Tom Brady. Like he's driven to prove people wrong watch Tampa Bay because he would love to go to Tampa Bay into that offense and say, you know what? At 43, I can learn a downfield offense and function in a downfield offense. And what did Tom Brady do? He went to Tampa Bay. And so I, I think I've got a pretty good read into this guy's mind. Certainly the fact that I'm just seven months older than him maybe has something to do with it. I don't know how he does it. I'm sitting here, Dan, my back hurts, my knees hurt. I've been doing Peloton workouts at home, trying to stay in shape, and they kick my butt every night. But there's Tom Brady, seven months younger than me, still doing this. So I know he's driven to prove people wrong. He says, no, I'm driven to prove the people that believed in me right. No, I don't believe it for a second. He's driven to prove people wrong. Now he gets to prove Bill Belichick wrong. And so what do I think it's going to look like? I'm reminded of Rocky Three. The prediction? Pain. Like, that's what it's going to look like for the rest of the league. Because Tom Brady is going to go out and throw for 35, 40 touchdowns. Like, he's going to have a new career-type year. I am, like, almost certain of that because he is now driven to prove Bill Belichick wrong. So, yeah, I think he's going to have a great year. Right, and those weapons and the, the two tight end set that he's going to have with Bray and Howard, it's, it's, yeah. it's not badly set up when you look past the scheme. I mean, obviously, Aaron's is going to adjust things for him. Yeah, and look, 
it's easy, you know, and I do this a lot. You put these offenses into buckets. You say Bruce Arians is a downfield guy, and, you know, Andy Reid is a West Coast guy, and Doug Peters is a West Coast guy. Every offense has mesh in it. Every offense has a three-level stretch in it. Every offense has stick in it. Like, you know, they, they all steal from each other. It's hard to find, like, a pure West Coast or Coriel system anymore. I mean, you look at Andy Reid. I wouldn't call what he's doing really West Coast. I'd say it's West Coast on steroids. You're not going to take Patrick Mahomes and have him throwing five-yard outs all the time. Like, you'd be insane. You know, and that's why the Chiefs have been so successful because a coach like Andy Reid was willing to – look at his playbook and say, you know what? This entire section of five-yard outs and hitch routes, I'm going to rip it up and throw it out because I'm not wasting Patrick Mahomes on those. And so, you know, Bruce Arians will do something similar. All these ridiculous vertical concepts, I'm going to, you know, we're not going to call these a lot. But a lot of what he does is set up for Tom Brady because you've got you got three-level read to one side and a backside route where he can move the free safety with his eyes. That stuff Tom Brady can still do. And so I think Arians will be smart enough to cater his offense a bit to what Tom Brady does. But I think Tom Brady likes the idea of throwing it deep every now and again. And now, instead of throwing it deep to a 5'9 receiver in Julian Edelman, he's got Mike Evans to do it with. Right, and I assume those security concerns they had around Zoom was you hacking those Arians and Brady calls, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly, right? Yeah, I mean, I was joking with a friend, but like that could be the best podcast never made. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it would be <laughs> like like there's there's so many ways this whole thing will go. Um, but I, I just Dan, I just keep coming back to the idea that you know Brady with a chance to prove people wrong yet again mm-hmm. is going to lead to Brady doing some impressive things on the football field. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a, a great recap to get get the Bucks fans excited for the season. I know that you've been putting yourself through the ringer this year, looking at Trubisky and, and breaking down his his tape in, in some real detail. How do you see things moving forward for the Bears, and how do you see the, the Foles fit coming up for this season? Well, I mean, I, I think two things can be true at the same time. You know, I think you can look at Nick Foles and think that he's a good fit for what they do schematically. And obviously, look, there's there's a previous relationship there. Uh, Matt Nagy and Nick Foles have spent some time together. You know, you look at, you know, his experience, Foles is in sort of a Reed, Peterson, Nagy, West Coast-based offense. And you can say that he's a very good fit for what they do. But you can also point out that Ryan Pace did panic a bit in making that trade. Like, you you send a fourth-round pick, you take on that contract, and I know you've reworked it somewhat, but... Pace knows that he needs to deliver somehow a Super Bowl to Chicago because short of that, he will forever be the guy that traded up from three to two to draft Mitchell Trubisky when Patrick Mahomes and Sean Watson were staring him in the face. That's a tough one to come back from. That's an L that's tough to come back from. And, And so he has to get the quarterback position right. So they made the move for Foles. I think it's a good fit. I also would have firmly believed that they would have been one of those teams to draft Jake Fromm. Because prior to that trade, I was convinced that Jake Fromm, with some of his you know, athletic and arm talent limitations aside, could have walked into that offense and run it better than Mitchell Trubisky. Like, you know, Jake Fromm is not a schematically diverse quarterback. 
he's limited in scheme in schemes. Like I think there are a handful of situations where Jake Fromm would be great, and I think Chicago was one of them. But as for Falls, I think the fit makes sense, but it doesn't mean that Pace didn't panic when he made that trade. Right, yeah, and whether it's a, a desperate clamor for some kind of continuity for their offense or whatever, even if it's someone that you you know coached three or four years ago, it's right. who, who knows where they were going with that. But it'd be interesting to see what comes out of it. Mark, five minutes left, and I, I want to finish on on some real insight from you. I guess what has you most intrigued coming into this draft, just holistically? I think there are a couple of things that have me really excited to see unfold and i'm going to step away from the quarterbacks i mean the quarterbacks it's always exciting to see where they go i'm very curious to see how the league actually views isaiah simmons you know because when i watch him i see somebody that maybe he's not a pure free safety maybe he's not a pure linebacker but every time i write about him i, I ranked him as a linebacker in our top 11 linebackers a touchdown wire he is linebacker one but that's just because he played the most snaps in sort of a linebacker-type position. I mean, every time I write about him, even there, I list him as, you know, when I write name, position, school, you know, Jake Farm, quarterback, Georgia, Joe Burrow, quarterback, LSU, Isaiah Simmons, defense, Clemson. Like, I don't list him with a position. He's just a, he's defense. Like, I believe that in this trend towards positionless football, number one, and in this move to view football as a matchup game by offenses, I see how Josh McDaniels designs plays to get favorable matchups and then exploit them. You need to have a defensive guy that can, on first down, run with a tight end up the seam. That on second down, can blitz off the edge. And then on third down, can run with a slot receiver. And Isaiah Simmons can do those things. Like, when you see somebody line up across from Miles Boykin who runs a 4-4 at the combine and stay stride for stride with him on a 40-yard vertical route and then can play linebacker and then can play safety and then can play defensive end, those guys don't come around every so often. And so I firmly believe he's a top-five pick. I don't know if the league views him the same way. I mean, we're, we're, we're recording this on a day where Makai Becton is being dinged because he likes to cook and he likes to eat. Like, we're still talking about old-school football minds that you've seen reported on Isaiah Simmons. Well, I can't line him up at free safety 50 times a game. Sure, then don't. Like, if you draft him and do that, that's on you. Like, just draft him and put him in a position to be successful. Last time I looked at sort of the global definition of coach, it's to get people in a position to be successful. Draft Isaiah Witt and let him just flow around and make plays. Like, that will be fine. Like, if you drafted him to properly fit in the gap 50 times a game as an inside linebacker, you're not using him to his best. And so I'm fascinated by Simmons. I'm fascinated by the wide receivers. I think this is such a deep wide receiver group. I'm going to be curious to see who's willing to go early on receiver, A, B, who's willing to wait on receiver, and C, who wide receiver four is. I think everybody's agreed that – Lamb, Judy, Ruggs are one, two, three in some order. Like I might have it, you know, Judy, Lamb, Ruggs. Others might have it, Lamb, Judy. Others might have it, Ruggs first. I want to see who wide receiver four is. I think for me, it's LaVisca Chenault or Justin Jefferson. But Chenault obviously has injury concerns and people try to think that Jefferson is a slot type guy. I think he's not. But I'm curious to see who wide receiver four is. So I'm very curious about that. 
I'm curious about the offensive tackles. Similar type thing. We all have basically the same big four, but in what order? So I'm curious about that. And and finally, you know, I'm curious about the corners. You know, we're hearing this late push that maybe C.J. Henderson is closer to Jeffrey Okuda than we thought. You know, so I, I think Okuda is still the top guy. But do we see Henderson sooner than we thought? Do we see three corners in the first round? Four? If so, who are those three and four guys? Do we see five? Who's number five? So those are some of the more, like, global things, Dan, that I'm curious about in this draft. Right, for sure. And it's generally, for me, the, the idea of are we going to see more trades? Are we going to see less? Are people yeah. going to be sticking their neck out even more or less? Because, you know, there's so much uncertainty at the I, moment. Yeah, I mean, that's a great one, Dan. And I'm wondering if because of this current global climate, we see teams either trade back, trade up, or trade to next year. Like, are we going to see mm-hmm. teams just say, look, you know what? I can pick here at 23. I'm New England. I'm going to punt it in exchange for a second, a second, and a future third because I'd rather, like, kick these decisions down the road a bit. I'm curious if we see a lot of teams traded for 2021 picks rather than making picks now. I'm wondering if, you know, I, I think we could do a lot of the work as G. You know, not that I'm a general manager, but I think general managers can do the work and be comfortable picking some of these guys. But as we get sort of into like day two and three, are they going to be willing to just kick it down the road a bit? I'm curious to see if that's how teams approach it. Right. Yeah. And whether that affects the pricing of it. Right. I think the last time that the Dolphins went up to the third pick, they admittedly, this was one of the historically worst draft classes. I think it was 2013. Went up from 12 to three for a second. Yeah. Right. Which which isn't going to happen this year. I, no, I but it's, don't know, but it's we'll just, see. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. Mark, thanks so much for your time, mate. It's it's been great to chat, and oh, uh, offline at some point we will talk about Newcastle. We're going to keep it clean here, but yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're, this is airing live. We don't have a filter. Yeah. Like you'd have to just cut my mic if I started talking about Mike Ashley and what he's done to this club. That that look, I, I've. Shed some tears over, consumed some pints because of. I've still got a Johan Kabai orange Newcastle top somewhere around here. I've got a number Choice. 37 Hatem Ben Arfa one. Remember when he first signed with Newcastle, he wore number 37? Yeah, before he switched to 10. Yeah, I've got one of those. Like, yeah, it's been a rough, say, 15 years of me with this club. It hasn't been a full lifelong thing. I picked him up in the, you know, 2005. I, I lawn for passports with Pardue. I'm lawning for passports with Pardue. That's how bad it is. I mean, just the phrase longing and Pardue in the same same breath. Is... He, 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 the man made a good gift, though. I will say that. <laughs> Alan Pardue <laughs> gifts are fantastic. Between the smile one and the dancing one, like there are some good Pardue gifts out there. Yeah, that's fair. And and today I saw one of a uh, completely different coach back in the day, but Benitez, where he swiped his own name onto the screen. I'm going to have to send you that one. But that's, oh, please uh, do. That sounds that fantastic. A treat. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, thanks so much for your time. Um, I know that you, you typically write and podcast in a few places. Can you detail a few for the readers? I don't think I need to give any more recommendation. You're fantastic insights. But uh, 
they sure. need to know where to go. Sure. Thanks, man. And Dan, it's great to catch up with you. Um, like you said, it's been a while since we talked. Great to hear your voice. Great to see you again. Glad to see you're doing well with the family. Um, for me, follow me on Twitter at Mark Schofield, but right for places like um, Touchdown Wire, USA Today, uh, Matt Waldman's RSP, a bunch of different SB Nation websites. Um, but the main one right now is Touchdown Wire. Doug Farrar and I are covering the draft. We'll be covering the NFL year-round. Might even start a podcast. Who knows? But easiest way, though, Twitter at Mark Schofield. Awesome. Amazing. And, I mean, some of the writers might not know this, but the, the touchdown.co.uk started really borrowing the model from inside the pylon and, and trying to give writers a platform to, to get noticed. So you, you all out with Mark one there. So <laughs> Yeah, all over the place, man. Uh, but, yeah, no, and, uh, yeah, thanks for the work, Mark, and, and for coming on, and we'll catch up again soon. Sounds great, my friend. Awesome. Speak soon. Cheers, Mark. Cheers.